When Mercy, Compassion, and Nursing combine to help the homeless on the streets of Atlanta, what's the result of such heartfelt and important work? Let's talk all about it with extraordinary street nurse Joy Fernandez de Narayan, right here on episode 310 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. In these days of the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm still bringing you my monthly pandemic updates at the end of every month. Meanwhile, this podcast continues to be all about you, your personal and professional development, your nursing and healthcare career, and the healthcare system as a whole. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people in the worlds of healthcare, medicine, nursing, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, whether you're new to the show or you've been on this journey with me for months or maybe even years. Thanks for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And remember that Nurse Keith Coaching is your destination for all things related to your career. I offer individualized, holistic career coaching for nurses and healthcare professionals around the world. And if you mention the show, you can get 10% off your first coaching package. So email me at keith at nursekeith.com to schedule a chat. The show notes for this episode, which you're going to want to check out, are going to be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 310. And today we are joined by new friend of the pod, Joy Fernandez de Narayan, and she works for Mercy Care in Atlanta, Georgia. And she has actually been referred to me by my sister who lives down in Georgia and does great work down there herself. And Joy, I'm really happy to have you here. And the very first question I want to ask you is, how would you define street medicine, which is what you practice? Yeah. Hi, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, So street medicine is basically the provision of medical care um, where people are. Um, And so it is an international movement and different organizations, you know, take it differently. Walking rounds, bike rounds, setting up tents in parks, mobile coaches. Um, But it really is just the provision of services um, to unsheltered folks generally meeting them where they are. Um, we can do, you know, medical, social services, psychiatric services, substance abuse services, um, basically anything out there. Wow. That's incredible. And everything you do is based out of, well, there's a main clinic, but you actually work out of a mobile, uh, like a mobile clinic, right? Yeah. So we take either a van or a shuttle, which is kind of the size of an airport shuttle. Mm-hmm. And we go give people care wherever they are. Right now during the pandemic, we don't invite people onto the shuttle to get care. But generally, you know, on the side of the road, under bridges and different encampments, um, we'll go provide care. Um, Mercy Care does have two mobile coaches, which are more um, kind of traditional clinic settings. So someone would come up and there are exam rooms um, and it's a... Mm-hmm in a lot of ways, a more robust kind of a situation, but you do have to come in, whereas we'll grab our backpacks and walk down to go see you. Right. Okay. Now, uh, Mercy Care in Atlanta is a federally qualified community health center in FQCHC. Uh, I cut my teeth as a nurse in, in federally qualified centers as well in Western Massachusetts. And F. QCHCs almost always, or maybe always, serve the most vulnerable populations mm-hmm. in, 
urban or maybe not a not an urban area, but a lot of them are in cities. Mm -hmm. So who are the people who are reached by mercy care in general, like the bigger population? I know you work with the homeless. Mm -hmm. Who else do they work with? Who do they reach? So we are actually a healthcare for the homeless federally qualified health center. And so oh. our main focus is on those experiencing homelessness. I see. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you are a, you're a DNP, a mm -hmm. uh, family nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm. And how did you come to, to nursing? Was it something you dreamed of as a child? Was it something that just kind of hit you over the head one day? <laughs> how did you get into, into this particular profession? Yeah. So as a child, I actually wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, and I really, I worked at a kennel um, when I was really young, uh, too young to be working. Mm -hmm. And I um, tell, actually, hmm? I won't tell. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in high school, we, um, in Miami, where I grew up, we were enrolled in a program, in a high school program where we would also graduate with technical degrees. And there was a CMA program there, and I chose the veterinary technician program. Mm. Um, but my family, when I was in the middle of high school, moved to Georgia to start a church plant. My dad's a pastor. Mm -hmm. um, and I just was moved by what a huge impact you can make in other people's lives if you step out of your comfort zone. Mm. And I started to feel drawn towards the mission field. Um, and there's, for like agricultural veterinary medicine, there's plenty of work to be done, but I like dogs and cats. And there's not a whole lot of that kind of work to be done in the mission field. And so I started to think about like, well, how can I marry, you know, my passion for science and uh, medicine with mission work? And so I decided to go into people medicine um, and change tracks and went to nursing school. Um, I went to Honduras while I was in my undergrad program just to kind of see. I went to volunteer at a clinic that we had down there. And it really just solidified that, yeah, I, I want to do this. Um, graduated with my bachelor's. I looked at medical school, uh, PA school and NP school. And I just really like that nursing, holistic, wellness-focused care. So I decided to be an FNP. Well, you're speaking to the choir about the holistic aspects of nursing. So I totally get it. And when I was doing my bridge program, ADN to BSN, mm -hmm. We had the opportunity at the University of Massachusetts to go to Jamaica and work in the bush at a very small, semi-rural hospital. Mm -hmm. And I still have friends and a godson down there to this day. And that was right. like that was like 20 years ago. So I understand that that experience to be able to see from a medical slash nursing standpoint mm -hmm. how other people live and how other people get care or don't get care relatively mm -hmm. speaking, in other countries. So I, I get where you're coming from. And so I understand that, you know, you wanted to be a veterinarian and I know you have a small farm with ducks mm -hmm. and chickens and cats and dogs and um, sounds great to me. Um, and I hope to visit next time I'm able to come to the Atlanta area to see my sister and her family. I will. Um, I love ducks too. They're <laughs> and so cats cute. And dogs and chickens. <laughs> they are. Yeah. I follow a lot of ducks on Instagram. They're, they're everywhere. They've taken over Instagram. Anyway, I digress. So you wanted to do veterinary medicine. You mm -hmm. end up in nursing and you did some mission related work down in Honduras. Mm -hmm. So 
when did you decide as a nurse that I am actually going to work with the most vulnerable people and I really want to work with people who are, you know, challenged by not having homes? Mm -hmm. How did that come about and when did you decide to do that? So I think I went into nursing thinking about the underprivileged and the underserved populations. Um, My idea was, you know, I speak Spanish, I'll go to a Spanish speaking country and set up shop um, with a clinic for the poor and, you know, all that good stuff. And then I graduated with my master's and I had all these student loans that I had to pay off before I could abdicate the country. (laughs) Um, And so I started looking, it kind of drove my mom crazy um, because I only applied to jobs with underserved people. So I, there was a little flat rate clinic um, up in Canton, Georgia, where I had done my practicum that I applied for a job. Um, and also in the prison system, I applied for a job there. And actually, both places said, like, sure, come on in. I had a start date for my prison work. And, you know, a couple of weeks before I was supposed to start, the physician was like, I don't want a new grad. Um, so all oh. of that fell through. And I was oh, how disappointing. Like, I know. I was yeah. like, you couldn't have said that, you know, when I applied months ago and I'd been to multiple interviews, sat down with HR. It was just very disappointing. Um, But I'd heard about Mercy Care while I was still in school um, because I was looking at the loan repayment programs and they popped up as one of the places eligible for service loan repayment. And so, you know, I heard that that prison job fell through, the flat rate clinic job, they didn't get their grant. So that fell through. Um, and so I was like, well, let me look at this, you know, Mercy Care job again. And they have a, uh, at that time, they had a clinic on Buford Highway, which we were actually, our church was looking at starting another little church plant there in that area. Um, very densely populated with Hispanic people. Um, you have to speak Spanish to go work in that clinic at that time. And so it's like, oh, you know, let me look back at this clinic and see if a job has opened up. And it had. Um, so I went ahead and put my application through after a week or two i went i walked in the door with my resume and my fresh innocent self it's like hey can i talk to somebody about this job i applied for they all looked at me like i was insane that's great great. (laughs) um but you know they took the resume and i got a call back um and a couple months later i started working there Um, and i was like i'm gonna pay off my student loans and i'm gonna still leave and go do something else you know even though what i was doing was mission oriented Um, And the street medicine program actually started in November of 2013, which is just a couple months after I started working at Mercy Care. And our volunteer services coordinator was like, hey, you should talk to those people. They sound like, you know, you'd get along with them really well. They're your people. people. That's what she said. Yep. And uh, so I did. Um, And my first night of street medicine was in February of 2014. It was the coldest night of the year. Um, And so we didn't do a whole lot of like medical care that day. It was mostly tracking down people that we knew who were sleeping outside and trying to get them into emergency shelter. And just that experience of being out there, you know, it was at that point, probably 20 something degrees in Atlanta, which is really cold for us. Um, And it was going to get down in the teens that night and trying to interact with people and convincing them like, come on, come inside. We don't want you to freeze to death and interacting with the people and interacting with the people on the team. I was like, yes, this is, this is great. This is what I want to do. So they started letting me out of clinic to participate in street rounds occasionally. Um, it initially started just Wednesday evenings. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then they let me go once a month and then I pushed again and they let me go to twice a month. Um, and then eventually as the program expanded, I was able to go join the team full-time, uh, four days a week, which is, you know, the 32 hours. Right. And just, you know, dedicate my time to being on street medicine. And by that time, uh, I was like, you know what, you really, my mom was right. You really don't have to leave uh, the country to go do mission work. There, are, There is such a huge need right here. Mm-hmm. And part of the mission work thing to me is like, no one wants to, you know, go live in a third world country to help poor people. So I'm willing to do it. I might as well do it. And just realizing like, well, no one really wants to be outside when it's 20 degrees point. and, you know, deliver care to this person who's sleeping, you know, two miles from my house. Uh, so that I think kind of instilled in me or just kind of convicted me like this is real mission work and you are mm-hmm. dealing with the most vulnerable people who have nothing have nowhere to go they've lost trust in all the systems um a lot of times burned a lot of bridges and um yeah you know let's let's go after them so that's 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 a beautiful way to look at it and realizing that yeah, I don't have to leave the country mm-hmm. to have this kind of impact. And sure, I mean, a lot of us think about joining Doctors Without Borders, you know, MSF, or or going and doing work wherever, you know, because it, it's it's exciting. Mm-hmm. And you're right, not a lot of people want to do it, but but there are a lot of people who do, thankfully. You're one of them. And I did a lot of work with vulnerable populations in Massachusetts and did some work in Jamaica. And during school, during my bachelor's program, we did a community health project. Mm -hmm. We each had to do one. And we were assigned to this clinic in um, Holyoke, Massachusetts. That was an outreach clinic, a drop-in clinic for people with substance use Mm -hmm. disorders, mostly injection, injection drug users. And I had this idea actually to go there and do education for the the people with these disorders, substance use disorders, and actually do harm reduction Mm -hmm. and train them. You know, if you're going to shoot up, here's how you take care of your veins. This is how you make sure you stay healthy. This is why you don't share needles. And it was very controversial within the school Mm -hmm. in terms of the professors, but you know, you can't just go in and tell somebody to stop using drugs. You can't just tell them, just don't sleep on the street mm-hmm. because you're not supposed to, or it's not healthy, right? So you're meeting people where they are. Mm-hmm. And many of us have had the opportunity to do that. And it's hard sometimes, isn't it, to, or let me ask you actually, how hard is it to to not want to impose on this homeless person who's maybe burned a bunch of bridges, right? Mm -hmm. How hard is it to not want to project onto them what you want them to do and what you as a healthcare professional know what's best for them? Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you walk the line? You know? Yeah. So I think it does get easier with time because at first you're just like, I'm going to go fix everything. And I, I'm sure, you know, any nurse listening to this, you start nursing school, you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and you're going to save the world, right? Um, And so thankfully, nursing is not a hugely paternalistic um, profession. And, you know, we do get taught Mm -hmm. evidence-based practice. Sure, you follow the evidence and you 
suggest and recommend things, but ultimately you have to pair that with the patient's desires and their goals for their own life. Um, And so just coming in with that attitude of, okay, what, what is your goal? What do you want? It does get very difficult. Um, That first night of street medicine, we met a very psychotic young man who um, we were like, Hey, let's, go to winter shelter because it's going to be really cold. And he was like, oh, I'm just going to stay here with my dad. And there was no one with him at all. He was by mm-hmm. himself. Uh, and we were like, um, no, but just like bring your dad with us. It's fine. And he was like, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And we talked back and forth. The um, person who started the program is a psychiatrist. And so we were like, well, does he need to be involuntarily committed? Is he going to die tonight if we leave him here? Do we, What do we do? Um, and you know, ultimately we just made sure that he was warm enough. You know, there are people who get really drunk and get naked and like even housed people and just, you know, pass out somewhere and freeze to death. Um, he was not in that state. He was bundled up. He was ready to, you know, ride out the weather. Um, and so we made the decision that, you know, it would do much more harm to force him inside than to just make sure he's safe where he is. Um, and he's someone we still actively work with. Really? Yeah. And that's Great. it's been six years. <laughs> yeah. So so you met him where he was and you were like, okay, we can't force him because trust is a big part of the work you do, right? Yes. The ultimate. And you've been building trust with him for six years, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you begin a relationship with someone on the street who you meet for the first time and maybe they haven't interacted with the healthcare system for a while mm-hmm. and you imagine that there's medications they should be on etc cetera, etc cetera, mm-hmm. right you know the drill so how do you begin like what's the first step so that this person might actually warm to you a little bit yeah so Pre-COVID, it was a whole lot easier. So we'll go over that first. (laughs) Okay, let's talk pre-COVID, okay. Pre-COVID, yeah. So we would um, drive up, get out of the shuttle and, you know, announce ourselves. Mercy Care is here. If people are like, go away, we say, okay, we'll come back next week and we'll get back in the shuttle and we leave. Um, And so I think that's um, part of, uh, you know, just building that trust is we respect your space. Like I have a door I can close and keep people out. You don't. And so I'm going to knock on your door. And if you tell me to leave, I'm leaving. Um, And so we say, you know, hey, I oftentimes, you know, when you approach someone, if the population says you're okay to stay, um, a lot of times they'll just be like, hey, knock, knock. It's mercy care. Can I come in? You know, before you Mm -hmm. enter into that, it's usually six to 10 feet of distance, you know, just kind of that personal space where people are bedded down and, you know, you offer snacks, water, socks, whatever. We have a blanket um, and ask if they're interested in any medical services or any social services. The answer is usually no. And pre COVID Mm -hmm. we could just be like, Oh, do you mind if I just sit down and hang out and talk to you for a little bit? And just how's your day? How's the weather Mm -hmm. been? Just kind of how you would talk to anybody because they are just people. Yeah. Um, And so we, um, you know, just shoot the breeze. You eventually learn who they are and they learn who you are. Most people have heard of Mercy Care before, for better or for worse, usually for better. 
Um, and so you just, you know, you talk, um, sometimes they have dogs with them and we can pull out a dog picture and be like, look, this is my puppy. What's your puppy's name? And over the course of conversation, you know, a lot of times things come up of like, oh yeah, you know, I was in a fight the other day and I got stabbed and do you have a bandaid? And I'm like, yes, I will gladly look at your stab wound. Mm -hmm. Um, and you just kind of go in, um, usually people's first encounter with us that is like billable and countable, um, is like Tylenol. Yeah. Um, you know, I have this headache, I have whatever. Um, sometimes we'll just go up to people and be like, when was the last time you got checked? Would you like to do a quick checkup? Our psychiatrist who started the program would be like, would you like a checkup from the neck up? (laughs) And it was, uh, it was great. And it was just a a great disarming way to, um, you know, talk to people. We go by first names. Hey, I'm joy. What's your name? Mm -hmm. Um, is it okay if I sit by you? Is it okay? Whatever. Um, is it okay if I come back next week and check on you? And you eventually wear down walls with um, consistency, with respect. Um, we make very few promises and strive to keep all the ones that we make. Um, so that's, you know, that's how we do it. So you under deliver, you under promise and over deliver. Oh yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's a good practice. And what I hear, like you said, I hear respect, compassion, and then I hear this level of like just acceptance and also curiosity. Curiosity is really important to me and I know it's important to you. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like curiosity is a big part of establishing rapport, right? Yeah. Yep. And with this population, you have to be even more careful not to dig too deep too fast because you're not sitting in an exam room where they came because they wanted to. Yeah. You pulled up in the van and said, may I come in and sit by you and chat? Mm-hmm. So when we come back from the break, I want to talk about the pandemic and how it has impacted your work beyond you know, the six foot distance and all that kind of stuff. And also talk about where your faith comes in and how it ties together with the mission of Mercy Care. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the faith of many people who work at Mercy Care, and also just how how Mercy Care functions and some very interesting and um, heartening statistics about the positivity rate Mm -hmm. with the population you work with. So we'll be right back for the second half of episode 310 of The Nurse Keith Show. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other awesome listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support The Nurse Keith Show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash nurse Keith. And if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit. So you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. What an incredible deal. And please head over to nursekeith.com and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out regularly and brings you supportive messages, 
updates from my blog and my podcast, resources, and all sorts of other stuff. Remember, nursekeith.com, sign up for that newsletter, and you'll also get a free download from me as my gift to you. Anyway, those are my sincere asks today. So now let's dig back into today's topic without further ado. And welcome back to the second half of the Nurse Keith Show, episode 310. And remember to learn about Mercy Care and the work that Joy does with her colleagues. Head over to nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode in the number 310. So Joy, we were just talking about establishing rapport and relationships through trust and compassion, Mm -hmm. accepting and meeting people where they are and not imposing or projecting what you think is best for them. Mm -hmm. So I think most or all people listening get that. And we all practice that in nursing or medicine to some extent. But like we were just saying before the break, um, when someone comes to see you at the clinic and sits in an exam room with you, they've come there voluntarily, but in the, in the shuttle or whatever, you're pulling up to them and saying, Hey, can we hang? Can we, Mm -hmm. can we talk? And like the psychiatrist would say, do you want to check up for the neck up? Right. So let's talk about the pandemic. (laughs) So first I understand from Diana, um, one of my wonderful contacts at Mercy Care, your colleague, that you have a really great result to show in terms of um, testing and COVID-19. Can you share a little bit about that? We're part of the initial response for COVID-19. A lot of places, you know, completely shut down. And we did definitely slow up a lot of like the medical services that we provided. Um, And as we discussed before, you know, I used to just walk up to someone and then sit right next to them and talk to them. And we know that that had to stop. Um, But we continued to do outreach and we continued to canvas the city. Um, We put up a lot of flyers, gave a lot of education, passing out a lot of hand sanitizer um, and just talking to people about, you know, this is this is a pandemic. Very early on, there was a rumor that went around that African-American people could not get COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was a huge amount of resistance to because, unfortunately, we have a largely African-American homeless population. And they were all like, yeah, we're fine. We can't get it. And uh, our outreach teams were like, no, you really can. And it can make you really sick and it can kill you. And just Mm -hmm. doing a lot, a lot of education. Um, A lot of the soup kitchens shut down because of fear of spreading COVID. And we were able to respond by getting a lot more meal kits donated. And a lot of restaurants actually started donating fresh food for us to distribute. So you were doing that as a way to connect with people, even though the medical care was a little, was slower. Yeah. So we were very available for seeing emergencies and acute things. Um, and we continued okay. to provide medication refill and still delivering medications to people with chronic conditions, but less of the, you know, okay, let me cajole you into a visit and giving you some Tylenol, you know? Yeah. So things changed a lot. A lot. Mm-hmm. What, what Diana told me was that you have funding from the city mm-hmm. of Atlanta, Fulton County, different philanthropies, mm-hmm. and the Department of Health, and using teams from Mercy Care, the CDC, which is mm-hmm. in Atlanta, of course, Fulton Board of Health. Atlanta was one of the first cities in the country to test every single person in its shelter mm-hmm. system and most of its unsheltered population. Now, 
who who decided that was going to happen? Like, was that a collective decision or did that come from the mayor? Like, how did they say, okay, we're going to test, like, we're going to test everybody. Yeah. So our um, CEO, Tom Andrews, he is uh, very involved in the city. He's the CEO of St. Joseph's Health System, which is our kind of our parent. I see. Um, yeah, he's very involved with the city, um, as well as with the CDC. We have a lot of CDC volunteer doctors pre COVID who come right. help see patients and stuff. Um, and CDC docs sit on our board. Um, and so I think just mm-hmm. in meetings with the mayor and the city and the public health departments, he, you know, very strongly advocated that the homeless population is a very vulnerable population, especially the ones who are in shelters in that sure. congregate living situation and the CDC teamed up with us and tested, um, like you said, all the shelters, um, our outreach teams provided support, kind of rounding people up to get them tested as well as, you know, providing all the education and the hand sanitizer. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to see great success, you know, decompressing the shelters as well. They opened up a non-congregate shelter in a hotel where we housed a couple hundred of the most vulnerable unsheltered people in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, and we also have an isolation hotel. So if someone experiencing homelessness tested positive, they could have a place to go and um, quarantine That's and brilliant. isolate themselves. That's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And so we ended up with a rate of about a positivity rate of about 1.5%, mm-hmm. um, which is stellar considering the state of Georgia has been brushing up a, an average positivity rate of about 10%. So. Wow. That is incredible. And I wonder if there's any other cities in the U.S. who've actually accomplished that. And I haven't heard, I mean, <laughs> I haven't heard anything personally in the news. And I read a lot of COVID updates and news. Mm-hmm. I, I study very carefully and keep up to date. I haven't really heard much of anything about the homeless population related to the pandemic. There's an article here and there, you know, mm-hmm. not there's really not a whole lot. So this really needs to really get publicized and it, mm-hmm. this could be studied and it should be studied. And I'm, I hope the CDC will, will follow up on this with Mercy Care and others mm-hmm. and, and see how this can be replicated next time because there's going to be a next time, don't you think? I do, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, in our global society, it's hard to um, avoid it is hard to avoid, right? So let's talk a little bit about um, when you're focusing on vulnerable people, especially at such an existentially challenging time, and you've had to at first convince, like you said, a largely African-American population that the rumors were not true, that they could get sick. And then you had to convince people to get tested. And then you would actually then have to find them if they tested positive and then mm-hmm. isolate them. So that takes a lot of relationship building as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming there were some challenges along the way. So what do you do with someone who tests positive and you have to convince them that they have to isolate for two weeks or something? Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you do that? Thankfully, most of our people, um, as far as I know, have been pretty okay with isolating. Mm-hmm. I think implicit in their willingness to get tested, there was also a willingness to cooperate if they tested positive. Oh, I see. That that makes sense. And did that bear out? Was that true overall? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I haven't heard that anyone was super resistant to isolating. Um, we did also pass out tents initially mm-hmm. um, to help people maintain their distance. Um, I know for a fact that there were a number of people who did not get tested because they didn't want to get sent to the World Congress Center or whatever isolation right. facility. Right. So I think that we saw it pan out more of a, the people who were absolutely not going to go into isolation just didn't test. I see. So <laughs> you've just done your best with the mm-hmm. tools at your disposal, working with the the client. Do you call them clients or patients? Mm-hmm. Clients. Working with the clients who were willing to go along for the ride, so to speak, mm-hmm. and do the testing and isolating and treating and whatever that needed to be done. So, I mean, your positivity rate definitely says a lot. 1.5% compared to the general population, close to 10%. Mm -hmm. So if you don't mind, let's let's switch gears a little bit. And I want to ask you about the role of of faith in this work. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of nurses of faith out there. And there's a lot of people of faith out there. And you mentioned your church. And you also mentioned doing mission work in Honduras. And Mercy Care sounds like it was right up your alley because mm-hmm. of their mission. So, you know, you're, you're working under the aegis of the Ministry of the Sisters of Mercy, right? Mm-hmm. And can you tell us a little bit about the Sisters of Mercy and what their mission is? Yeah. So the Sisters of Mercy were started by Catherine McCauley in Ireland. Mm-hmm back sometime in the 1800s. Um, And they came over to the United States, um, specifically to Atlanta, um, right after the Civil War to start the first hospital for the poor, which is St. Joseph's Hospital. And they are all about trusting the Lord to provide. um, And they're also called the walking nuns. And they would just, you know, Mm -hmm. go out into the communities and interact with the poorest of the poor, starting, you know, hospitals, Um, homes for children and women, and just really caring for the populations. And so as time went on, downtown Atlanta became very expensive, and a business decision was made to move St. Joseph's Hospital from downtown to a more suburban area. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the doctors and nurses and everybody who worked there kind of felt like they left their mission behind. They left the really poor and underserved people, the homeless, um, kind of that urban poor setting behind. And so they decided to do something about it and grab some backpacks and started going back down into the city um, in a very street medicine-like model. Um, And Mercy Care was incorporated in 1985 out of that model. Um, And it was at first just very boots on the ground, Um, And eventually kind of built up to being a mobile coach and then having the standalone building that is our headquarters and just continuing to, you know, put clinics and shelters, continuing with the mobile coach. And in 2013, getting back to our roots of having street medicine. Um, And so for me, Jesus tells this parable in the Bible about, you know, if you have a hundred sheep, and one of them goes missing. The shepherd is not is the shepherd is going to leave those ninety nine sheep that you know did what they were supposed to do and were on the straight and narrow to go seek out and save that one sheep. 
And then when it comes back and the shepherd comes back, you know, there's more rejoicing in heaven over that one sheep who strayed and came back. Um, and right. so I just take that model, you know, there are 99 patients who are ready to come into clinic and do what they're supposed to do. Um, but for us, it's all about finding that one who turned its back and ran and, you know, bringing them back into the fold as best we can and, you know, hmm. loving them. Yeah. So that, that teaching mm-hmm. is very central to your kind of like your, your reason for being right You're mm-hmm. the It's sort of the, the, the engine that drives what you do. It sounds like, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also a lot of, um, if you read through the gospels, um, back in biblical days, lepers were like the, the mm-hmm. outcasts and you weren't allowed to touch them or get near them. Exactly. And you just read all these stories where Jesus was touching lepers before he healed them. He didn't like mm-hmm. heal them. And it's like, okay, now you're clean and I'll touch you. He mm-hmm. touched them first. And so going out into our ostracized communities of people who smell and are dirty and oftentimes have mental illness and substance abuse issues, and no one wants to touch them and they feel invisible. They haven't had human contact in such Mm -hmm. a long time. And to be able to reach out pre-COVID and actually touch them Mm -hmm. um, in that state and, you know, respectful and, you know, honoring of boundaries, touching, but just, you know, like, I'm not afraid of you Mm -hmm. and I'm not afraid that you're going to get me dirty or whatever. Um, being able to hug people who haven't had a hug in so long and just letting them know that they're seen. I think that has also been a big undermining um, position. It's like, you know what, if Jesus could touch actually contagious lepers, I can touch a homeless person um, Mm -hmm. and it's all going to be fine. Yeah. Beautiful. That's, that's lovely. I'm so, I love how you describe that. And what strikes me, and I don't think this is, this is irony or um, coincidence is that when you said that they went back into the city after St. Joseph's hospital left to the suburbs, right? They reestablished and then they realized they wanted to get back to the original mission because they had left the urban poor behind and they put on backpacks and they went into the city. Right. Mm -hmm. And you told me that, that mercy care was born around 1985. So the AIDS pandemic began like right in the early eighties. So here we had another epidemic slash pandemic that Mm -hmm. wasn't as pervasive as this one because it wasn't airborne. It was, Mm -hmm. it's a different, it's just a different process, but still there were people at that point who felt like lepers, right? Mm-hmm. If you would see someone with Kaposi's sarcoma, you know, with the, the purple um, kind of cancerous blotches on their skin. Um, I remember doing volunteer massage with people with, with AIDS before I was a nurse in the late eighties. And um People were like, are you really sure you should touch someone with Kaposi's sarcoma mm-hmm. with your bare hands? And I was like, darn straight, I'm going to touch them with my bare hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so here we are again, circling back from 1985 to the year 2020, now 2021. And you're in the same position of reaching out to the quote unquote, the lepers of society during a pandemic, right? So. Ooh. So on a personal level, what's going on for you, if you don't mind, if I may be so bold, in terms of thinking of, okay, so 
how how can I continue to live my mission and my life as we move through this pandemic and past the pandemic? Does does this mean you continue to do the work you do? Do you have more ministry or work that you would like to accomplish in your life? Yeah, so we're definitely going to continue with the street medicine thing um, and do our best to expand the program and keep that support coming um, so that we can reach as many people as possible. Um, We, through our point in time counts in Atlanta, normally have about maybe a little under 800 people sleeping outside. Hmm. Um, The street medicine team, not this year, but the year before reached about 300, a little bit more than 300 of them. Um, And so I'd love to be able to get a point where we can have a relationship with every single unsheltered person. Um, So definitely continuing on with that. Um, And then a little bit more personally with this farm, you know, we called it Traveler's Respite Farm. And it's all Mm. about creating haven, um, creating a way for creating, you know, a place of rest for people. Um, But also, you know, we've got a little flock of birds. And when they start laying, the intention is to be able to donate some of that to our local or I say local in Atlanta, we're mm-hmm. a little bit in the suburbs. Yeah. Um, but some of those partner agencies that provide breakfast to people um, who are sleeping outside and being able to give back, um, we do also support our local co-op as much as possible. And so, you know, if we can create food in abundance, then we'll have more to share mm. um, with those people who need it. Um, and then also just having a place, again, post-COVID, yeah. um, where people can come and just relax and enjoy. And my husband loves cooking. I love cooking. And just having a place where people can come, we'll cook for you, we'll take care of you, go play with chickens, play with the puppy. Can I play with the ducks? You can uh, You can try. They're not okay. the most friendly. <laughs> oh, darn. Um, yeah. But also thinking about getting our puppy uh, certified as a therapy dog at some point so that we can take her um, into different situations and have people, you know, like play with her, let her take all your trouble. She's fine. She'll be okay. That's fantastic. And is your farm a place, are you creating, am I understanding, is it sort of a, like a retreat where people could come and stay? Is that's, that what you're, is that, that would what be you're the envisioning? ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. 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 Um, I recommend a couple donkeys. I really love donkeys too. Yeah. My husband really wants a donkey. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's probably going to happen, but we're, we're working up to it. <laughs> I'll be there. I'll be there. My wife and I have supported this organization in Texas. It's actually the large, one of the largest shelters in the country and they rescue donkeys because donkeys are very maligned and on, mm-hmm. there's a lot of wild donkeys out here in the West that the the government basically kills. They kill them because they're the their their ancestors were the donkeys used in mining. So oh. they're all over wild donkeys and wild mm-hmm. burros. So a lot of them do get slaughtered. So this place um, in um, Texas, they actually house usually about a thousand donkeys at a time. So they actually do look for people like you who want to partner with them to be a kind of a satellite and house some of their donkeys and they actually take care of some of the care. So you and I will have to talk about this offline yeah, um, sounds because lovely. there's some, there's some great work to do out there with animals. And it sounds like, you know, your work that you do in the world is really from your heart and, and it powered by your faith, right? 
that's the power behind your heart and compassion is your faith. And it sounds like mm-hmm. that's been part of your life for a long time, whether it's, you know, raising animals and donating eggs to feed people, putting people up or doing street medicine. Mm-hmm. So one question I want to ask you as we begin to close is, what do you do personally, if you don't mind saying, when you feel like it's all too much, or you start to feel overwhelmed, especially in this time of the pandemic. What do you do, Joy, to just like find your center again if you feel like you're getting a little off center? Mm-hmm. If you don't mind me being so bold to ask a question like that. Yeah. Um, so I do try to um, practice, you know, like devotion time. Mm-hmm. Um, most days. Okay. Uh, and I also um, have um, gotten into the practice of like mindfulness meditation mm-hmm. kind of help ground myself of like, okay, this is the reality of what is happening right now. Mm-hmm. My puppy is not therapy dog certified yet, but she certainly does give me a lot of good therapy. I bet she does. Um, and so I, I like to nurture things. Mm-hmm. Um, so oftentimes if I'm feeling just really flustered, I'll go like weed the garden um, spend some time outside. I'll walk the grounds. I'll plant something. Uh, that kind of stuff really helps me stay centered. Um, and then just making sure I have good, strong relationships. You know, I've got my husband here, um, and at work having, you know, people to talk to. We do have a chaplain. I had a lovely conversation with her yesterday and Oh, good. That's, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a chaplain who goes out with you in the streets too? Unfortunately not. She's in no. the um, waiting room and she, we actually have two chaplains. So one in one of the clinics and another one kind of floats around. I see. So, so you, you can turn to your chaplain and I'm sure people in your church community, right? Mm-hmm. Even though mm-hmm. pandemic time, church is different. Yeah. And then you have animals and you have the land where you, you can work the soil because mm-hmm. that sounds like that's important to you. And then you have your husband. Mm-hmm. So so it sounds like family, church, colleagues, and you said mindfulness-based meditation mm-hmm. and devotional prayer, mm-hmm. I'm assuming. So yeah, all of those reading. things, yeah, and so all those things combined are what you utilize yourself to stay centered in a time of real existential challenge. Yeah, and unabashedly ask for days off. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's I'll just good. be like, uh, Brenda, I can't come to work tomorrow. I'm sorry. <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> well, that's a really good thing. There's probably a nurse out there listening who might have a really hard time asking for a day off because mm-hmm. nurses are like that uh-huh. often. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, I'll work on my 50th anniversary. Sure. Yeah. We'll celebrate the day after. No, I don't, I don't need to go on vacation. Right. So, yeah. you know, nurse martyr syndrome is a thing. Uh-huh. I've talked and written about it before. So it sounds like you don't allow yourself to fall into, into martyrdom. Yeah. I do my best not to. Yeah. That's, but it helps because at the level I am in the organization, we have a certain amount of paid time off and we, ha- it's like a use it or lose it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then my boss starts saying like, Hey, you're going to lose all your PTO. You need to take some time off. Or if I'm just looking haggard, she also kicks me out. That's good. I hope there might be a leader out there listening, thinking, oh, okay, I'm going to watch my nurses a little more closely. Yeah. Cause I mean, then you're useless. If you're, you know, you're tired, you're haggard, you're making mistakes, you're not able to care mm-hmm. compassionately. So, I mean, you also are a vessel of healing 
And if you're not able to engage with your client, that that healing can't happen, um, no matter how many pills you throw at them, you know. That's beautiful. Wow. A vessel of healing. So you certainly are a vessel of healing. It's very obvious. And thanks for being an example to others of, you know, how, you know, service and faith and love in action can really make considerable change. And you're creating relationships, but you're also coming out with this incredible low positivity rate among your population Mm -hmm. based on the work you've done. So this isn't just like all, you know, prayer and, and saying nice things to people. There's like, there's science involved here too. Mm -hmm. This is the science of nursing and medicine. So it sounds like a, a really lovely synthesis of, of all those different ways of approaching healing and health. And I want to thank you for, for doing such great work. Thank you. And thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed this. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this wonderful episode of the Nurse Keith Show. And remember, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 310. I hope you feel uplifted and inspired by Joy's story and the work of Mercy Care. And I encourage you to take inspired action every day in the interest of your personal and professional satisfaction and finding how you can also be the most loving and compassionate and healthy vessel of healing as joy just described for us and remember you can come to nursekeith.com for resources for jobs for resume templates from the resume rx and lots of other resources so please come to nursekeith.com to check out what is on offer the nurse keith show is a member of ours longa media a collaborative network of podcasts and media entities dedicated to professional education and partnering to improve social ills find them at arslonga.media that's a-r-s-l-o-n-g-a dot media the nurse keith show is also a proud member of the health podcast network along with Sanjay Gupta of CNN and his Coronavirus Factor Fiction podcast, the New England Journal of Medicine, Penn Nursing, the Mayo Clinics podcast, and many others. It's the fastest growing collection of authoritative, high-quality podcasts taking on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and excellence. Speaking of excellence, The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Thank you, Rob. And Mark Cappy-Speason is our stalwart social media ringmaster. My hat off to Mark as well. I'm grateful to Rob and Mark for being part of the team and keeping the wheels turning in the right direction, because sometimes I might turn them in the wrong direction, unwillingly, of course, or unwittingly. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying goodbye. Until next time, from beautiful and kind of cloudy and uh, sleety Santa Fe, New Mexico, and our friend of the pod, Joy Fernandez de Narayan, bidding you adios from Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Joy, thank you so very much. And thanks to everyone for listening. And we will catch you on the flip side. Mm-hmm.